0: Coming up this hour, Aubrey watched the NFL draft and we're going to talk sports. And then we're going to ask this question, can Christianity be the safest space for truth-seeking individuals? We're going to have that conversation with Brett McCracken next here on The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome to the Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. We made it to Friday. Here it it's is. It's Friday, finally. The weekend is here and we are glad that you're joining us today Uh on a Friday. As we said, it's been a great week. Looking forward to our show today, Aubrey. I teased it out there. You did something that I, I could not believe. I was I was immersed in the NFL draft last night. Like I'm I'm in it. I'm texting with my son. Nice. Uh, and then uh, the Chicago Bears, ironically, make a huge trade with a my massive favorite
1: trade.
2: team. Oh, your favorite my team. team is Ohio. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, sorry, sorry.
1: Oh, oh, I'm uh-oh. learning. I'm
0: learning.
2: <laughs> your favorite I mean, team is the Giants.
0: The New York Giants, yes. and so a trade came up. It was one of those classic win-win. It was a great trade for the Giants as they got lots of draft picks from the Bears, and it was a phenomenal trade for the Bears yes. as they got their quarterback of the future, Justin Fields. Justin and then Fields. I'm, I'm reading on Twitter. I'd like to see the reaction. Read the sports <laughs> writers from New York and Chicago. I'm on Twitter, and what do I see? But <laughs> I see, I see Aubrey Sampson giving a sports. Uh, (laughs) Feedback on Twitter, and I about dropped my phone right there. I did it for you.
2: Just so you know, I did it for you. I thought Brian's going to get excited because I'm watching the draft. I'm excited about Justin Fields. Kevin told me that that was a really good pick. So I knew to celebrate it because he told me to.
0: (laughs) So you were excited about it because your husband was excited about it and told you it was a good thing.
2: I mean, yes. I don't, I mean, I, I'll just be honest. I don't know who <laughs> Justin Fields is, but then I discovered some things and I'm very excited for the Bears now because finally I, I liked- we have a quarterback.
0: Uh now it's we. I'd like that you felt though <laughs> strong enough about it to go to Twitter and to go to Instagram.
1: <laughs> well,
2: I mean, you know, the people need to know what I think about the bears. They're always uh-huh. looking to me for sports commentary. So <laughs> I
0: know, 'cause cause I expect your husband to be writing things like Super Bowl and all these kinds uh, of always, things. It's really yes. weird because I've I have all these friends who are Bears friends out here and I felt good for them. I mean, you bears have been just desperately needing some quarterback like uh uh help not just help but needing like some uh leadership skill set a savior, the set, a savior. Yes. there
2: you go yes just yes. some
0: hope there's the word i'm looking for the bears fans just need this hope i mean really really going to just ride with andy dalton all year uh but for the giants who at the moment aren't looking for a quarterback they might be in a year or two here uh and who need more picks and stuff i was my son and i were high fiving when we saw the trade go up and then Yeah, it was a classic win-win. So here, what did you think in general, though, of watching the draft? How much of it did you watch? Yeah, did you enjoy your maiden voyage of a draft (laughs) experience?
2: Okay, so I... I really enjoyed the pageantry of it. I love the <laughs> announcements and the sounds, like when the Cowboys had their pick ready and that sound went off. It was like doo 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 or whatever it was. <laughs> That's and the draft
0: of the noise. Yeah, yes.
2: yeah. And then you know you got to see the the families and their homes celebrating. I will say we're going to play a clip for you of of Justin Fields. I will say I felt like he was a little anticlimactic. Like part of me was like, is he disappointed? It's the Bears, or was he just nervous? But he seemed a little bit like mellow. I thought he would be like, oh, "I'm so excited to be here for the Bears." And Instead, he was kind of like, yeah. "Yes, I will be a good leader for you."
0: Yeah. So before we get to that clip, I would, I think there's a couple different reasons for that. I think that is genuinely his personality. If you okay. watched him in the past, okay. but two, uh, I think he thinks he should have gone a lot higher, and so I do oh, think there was probably a level okay. of disappointment of like, "I'm better than these other guys." So if that's the case then that could be a classic of the bears might get something good there because he's going to be playing with a chip on his shoulder. Uh, But yeah, there, there was, I mean, there was part of me that went, did he just realize he's going to the team that hasn't had a good quarterback since the 1950s? I know
2: I I did. I did think that I, I did that crossed my mind, but it was, it was fun to watch. Let's go ahead and take a listen to the moment with Justin Fields when he got drafted by the bears with the 11th pick. In the 2021 NFL Draft, the My Chicago Bears select Justin Fields, quarterback of Ohio State. Oh! Okay, so that was my first big, like, sports experience, Brian.
0: It was, and I'm I'm proud of you. You know, Thank I don't you. mean that in a patronizing way. Thank it's you. It's like if there was a Marvel marathon on, yeah. it, I was like, You know what? For the sake of the show, I'm going to sit down and watch this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so,
2: listeners, I did this for you, Brian. I did this for you, and actually, no, it was really cool. It was actually very fun. It was more fun than I expected it to be. So, I I can see, especially if you're a fan, why that would be an exciting night.
0: And now think of it this way: not not that you need this, but. But now, if Justin Fields does turn into the greatest quarterback in Bears history, if there's Super Bowl or whatever else in the future, your husband, who is a diehard Bears fan, he is a diehard will hard Bears fan. Link draft night to his wife caring enough to sit there with him and watch a draft. It's this is going to produce good fruit in your marriage, probably for years to come.
2: I really appreciate that pastoral word, Brian. That that feels <laughs> true because now I'm invested. Kevin and I have this thing is co- in common. Maybe I'm going to get some Justin Fields jerseys for us to wear, there some shirts. All of a sudden, I'm like this massive Justin Fields slash Bears fan. Kevin's going to love that.
0: Yep. And now uh, to others of you who tweeted about this last night, uh, can we get a little more original? I probably had half a dozen tweets within the first half hour with some version of Soldier Fields. And, uh,
2: <laughs> I love how creative people are. Yeah, but yeah. You, see the,
0: you can see people think they're so creative, like Soldier Fields, and then, like, literally one after another, like a minute apart, it's like hey,
2: Soldier Fields. <laughs>
0: I said, okay, I get it. I, I get mean, it. Yeah, so the there's ba- a lot
2: you could do. He, Justin's on the fields.
0: Just go with Soldier Fields. Yeah,
2: Soldier Fields is better. Let's yeah, sorry. Sorry, everyone. Or if
0: you if you were writing a headline, it could be after after years of waiting, Fields is just in time.
2: Ooh, no? Brian
0: that's not bad, right there.
2: That's not bad. I, I, that's that's good. some
0: creativity for, yeah. for. I need to save that for sermon prep later today. I need to. Uh, <laughs> you need to tweet
2: that. No, you need to tweet that, I, that today. And see what this happens. This pick
0: was this pick was just in time. So let's do turn this uh, again. Excited for you to experience the NFL draft. Now we're really going to see how hardcore you are if you watch rounds two and three tonight, uh, because a little oh, less pageantry. More? Oh, there's seven rounds of this thing
2: <laughs> i can't I cannot commit to anything,
0: <laughs> but by the the third day when it's like rounds five, six, seven, they don't even stop to make the announcements. They just come up on the screen while the commentators are talking. They just ignore it. So uh, it changes. The pageantry goes away, so okay, okay. Uh, Yeah, but now the Bears have gotten their leader. What do you think – let's end it this way. What do you think it requires to be a good leader, to lead something like a football team, to be – what would you be looking for and go, okay, that is our leader. We found our leader of men here.
2: Yeah, I mean, beyond skill, right? Obviously, Mm -hmm. that feels like a super important part of the process. I would want a leader with a vision for the team, a leader who puts the team ahead of himself, a leader who's willing to, like – i mean kind of a you know a jesus-like leader who's willing to sacrifice himself for the state of the team one who really cares about the city of chicago and like stands up for chicago and speaks well about chicago and i'd want some humility but i want some fire right like someone Mm -hmm. who has a vision for like hey we're gonna turn this team around we're gonna go all the way we're gonna uh so i want to see investment passion and
0: humility what about you I just think you described a good pastor, too. (laughs) I feel like I did. You're right. You're right. I think you're right. I think obviously there's skill, but you want that leader who's like, hey, follow me. Here we go. That's it. Let's do this. And it's just, they have this fire. And Fields might not have seemed that way, but everywhere he's gone, he's been that type of leader. So it will be interesting. It's at least a new day for Bears fans. You're not out there going, okay, we got Andy Dalton this year. We got no chance. And so.
2: Yeah, no, we're excited. It's a new day. That's right.
0: It is a new day. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about this. Can Christianity be the safest, not just a safe place, but the safest space for truth-seeking intellectuals? That was a uh, the theme of an article written by Brett McCracken at the Gospel Coalition, and Brett's going to join us. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined uh, by Brett McCracken. He is the senior editor and the director of communications at the Gospel Coalition, also the author of The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. Uh, and we're bringing Brett on to talk about this fascinating article he just wrote at the Gospel Coalition t- that's entitled Christianity Can Be the Safest Space for Truth-Seeking Intellectuals. Brett, how are you doing, man? Thanks for joining us today.
3: I'm good. Thanks for having me, Brian. Good to be with
0: you and Aubrey. Absolutely. Hey, before we jump into all that we just talked about, why don't you reintroduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit?
3: Um, Yeah, I'll try to be as brief as (laughs) I can with this. Um, (laughs) Like you said, I'm the Senior Editor um, and Director of Communications for the Gospel Coalition, so I spend my days writing editing articles producing content for the gospel coalition website um on top of that i'm an elder in a local church here in southern california i live in santa Ana, which is in orange county here in southern california with my wife and our two little boys um nine months and two and a half so life is very full on on (laughs) all fronts um and and with my new book the wisdom pyramid i've been busy with with promoting and launching that recently
2: and all of it's happening while you're in Santa Ana, California.
3: So we're slightly, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. we're Pretend
2: like we're not jealous of you, Brett, but we are.
3: It is a perk for sure. So
2: we're talking about your new article at the Gospel Coalition, Christianity Can Be the Safest Space for Truth Seeking Intellectuals. And you actually said this in a strange twist, Christianity, long accused of being narrow minded, anti-intellectual and afraid of difficult questions, has the potential to fill a growing void in Western culture. Can you talk to us about that?
3: Yeah, um, man. There's a lot I could say. So, um, I think this article came out of just my kind of long-term passions, which um, ever since I was a kid growing up in evangelical culture, I was always kind of the the nerdy, smart, you know, bookish kid who asked annoying questions to the youth leader and um, <laughs> wanted to wanted to kind of go to those places of the big questions and the hard questions about Christianity. And, you know, a lot of times it didn't feel like a safe place to ask those questions. And when I went to Wheaton College, um, it became kind of a safer place. Like Wheaton is a great environment for, you know, smart, you know, curious Christian kids to actually ask questions. And so, and then I worked for for Aubrey. Uh, Aubrey hired me to work at the Wade Center, which is the C.S. Lewis uh, Tolkien kind of the library study center at Wheaton and, and all of those authors, you know, epitomized what I think is a a healthy model of Christian intellectual life. And so I began to get a vision for this. And so it's kind of been a passion ever since, like, how do we get the church? How do we get Christian culture to be more friendly to curiosity and intellectual vibrancy? And um, I wrote this article because I've just sensed that in the broader culture recently, it seems like it's becoming less and less possible to have kind of an open dialogue where, you know, if you if you ask a hard question that kind of goes against the politically correct, you know, orthodoxy on different issues, you get shut down. And um, so the, the recent um, tweet by Richard Dawkins was kind of just like the the catalyst for me to finally write this article that has been kind of bubbling up for a while within mm-hmm. me um, so, it was just an opportunity to, to, to finally kind of take time to put some thoughts down. Um, and yeah, so, the idea is just like, look, if if people aren't finding it to be safe on social media to ask difficult questions, if they're not finding it safe, you know, in, in kind of secular college campuses to ask those questions, uh, if you go against kind of the, you know, majority opinion on things, then... Um, the church should be a safe place to, to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, another kind of catalyst for this is just the deconstruction phenomenon, which we could have a whole podcast episode talking (laughs) about, about just that. But I've seen, I'm sure you guys have seen just a lot of young people kind of deconstructing their faith. And a lot of times it's because they don't feel like they can ask hard questions in the church. And so they, they look to podcasts and they look to, you know, authors and influencers on the internet who are like deconstructing their faith. And, and that it, I think it's unhealthy when the, that process happens totally outside of the walls of a Christian community and a church yeah. community. So what can we do to make it possible for these uh, questions to be asked and these conversations to be had inside the church? Um, so anyway, that's a long okay. answer, but oh, let me to write the article.
0: It's such an important question. And before getting to like, what can we do? How do you diagnose why the church is often not a safe place for, you know, young people mm-hmm. or anybody to ask questions? What is it about the church where we normally shut those questions down?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is just leaders and pastors feeling fear of not having adequate answers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because there are hard questions that, that are being asked about Christianity, but that's not new. You know, throughout Christian history, there's always hard questions being asked. And Um, So part of it is just the, the overall kind of intellectual um, terrain of the church just hasn't been super robust. So leaders within the church don't feel adequate, adequately equipped to answer those questions. Um, So I think that's a reason. Um, I think the kind of slippery slope of fear is another reason that if you start kind of entertaining, you know, this kind of question and respecting the the process of uh, that, question, then you know, you're gonna suddenly get wishy-washy or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So yeah, those are a couple ideas for why it's it's uh yeah. I also think pastors are just, you know, exhausted. There there's so <laughs> much that there's so much that pastors are dealing with and especially in a year like 2020 where yeah. it's I mean, it's such a grind to be a pastor in today's yeah. world. So I think yeah. honestly a lot of them just shut down these conversations out of I just don't have time for this like can you go read this book or something <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. if you have questions about this so and i get that i, I get the um the sheer lack of energy to kind yeah. of um, to go there with people on these deconstruction journeys so i mean honestly that's why i think resources out there in parachurch like the gospel coalition like we're trying to come alongside pastors to give them helpful resources mm-hmm. Mm. To So that they don't have to have answers to all these questions. So like we just published a book on deconstruction at, uh, called Before You Lose Your Faith. Um, and it's a edited volume of different people contributing chapters. I contributed a chapter and great. Karen Swallow Pryor and uh, a bunch of great people. So that's an example of like, you know, it doesn't have to be that, that pastors and church leaders right. have like brilliant answers to like questions about hell or, you know, suffering yeah. or like yeah. these, these difficult questions, there's great resources out there. Um, and we just need to be able to kind of uh, come alongside each other in the broader church community to mm-hmm. to help.
2: That's so good. I love that. You're like uh, the next question I wanted to ask you was kind of a practical question. So I love that you just mentioned that resource before you lose your faith. So you're an elder in a local church, Brett, Brian and I are both pastors. We are feeling that I think exhaustion after this year, yeah. this 14 months, but um, for pastors who have the energy to want to get better at this, what are some practical steps um, that they can do to help make the church a safer place for curiosity and for hard questions and even, you know, for doubts?
3: Yeah, you know, I think um, a lot of it just is it happens on kind of a, a, a smaller scale, like one on one discipleship, you know, so just equipping your your small group leaders and, the, and anyone in the church who's doing discipleship to, to have kind of a friendlier tone and um, <laughs> yeah uh, to have, to have more of a hosp- hospitality towards um, people questioning and asking difficult questions. Um, so I would say that um, <clears throat> um, I would also say just, uh, you know, there's, there's good resources out there, like another book, um, but, uh, that I just read that's super helpful on this is AJ Swoboda's book. Um, I think it's called After Doubt. Um, and yeah, it's just a helpful kind of look at deconstruction and how to do that well in, in in a healthy way in the church. And one thing he says that I think is super helpful is go slow. Like mm. we live in this super fast-paced culture where like everyone, every, everyone expects instant gratification. Yeah. And that, even the person on the deconstruction journey expects like instant answers to my tough questions about Christianity. Mm. And that's just not realistic. Like with big kind of thorny, complex questions, like it needs to be, everyone involved needs to understand this is going to be a a slow burn. This is going to be a patient process. And so for both the person asking the questions and for the church leader, you know, trying to answer and come alongside the person asking these questions, I think just having a healthy sense of slow patient process like let's do this together but let's go slow and mm-hmm. and uh, encouraging people to like stick around like your questions mm-hmm. might not be answered to your satisfaction you know today or next month or even next year but you know, people a thousand years ago medieval Christians would wrestle through these questions, for a lifetime. Like, you know, there, there are like monks who would literally spend decades wrestling with some of these questions. And so we need to have a little more grit for (laughs) long-term patient like processing. So that's one, one tip I would say, like, don't, don't expect instant gratification on, on tough questions.
0: That's a good word. Brett McCracken, Mm -hmm. senior editor and director of communications at the Gospel Coalition, author of the article that we're discussing, Christianity Can Be the Safest Space for Truth-Seeking Intellectuals. And Brett, thrilled to have you stay with us. In the midst of your article, you kind of give some pointers as to like what we can do, some important points. And I just want to go to one of them you say that we need to model charitable disagreement on second things culturally we don't do disagreement charitably right charitable yeah. disagreement is a bit of an oxymoron for some yeah. people uh, help <laughs> us flesh that out a little bit what does it mean to model charitable disagreement on quote second things yeah um
3: man there's, there's a lot to say this is a huge a huge issue i think right. part of the part of the reason why like discourse generally in our culture is so degraded right now and it's just so horrible is we're not seeing models of this right like models of charitable respectful dialogue on on substantive differences right mm-hmm. yeah if we if we have substance and substantive differences on twitter we like you know throw bombs at each other about it mm-hmm. and we like tear each other down and we the conversation goes nowhere so <laughs> um this has not been the case in, in most of intellectual history like you know only recently has there been like a total devolution of <laughs> discourse. You know, yeah. th- you th- think back to like the Inklings, like Aubrey and I know the Inklings well, because of people at the Wade Center. <laughs> yep, like, we do. They, they would meet up, you know, at a pub, have some pints of beer and have like these really like vibrant discussions and debates. And, you know, they were Protestants and they were Catholics. So obviously they had like significant disagreements on theology and different issues, but they, they loved getting together and having these these um, charitable, friendly debates and disagreements. And so, that's what we need to just recover. We need to model that well. Um, we need to have, I don't know, just communities, forums, mm-hmm. the the places where w- this can happen. Um, and uh, I don't have any like smoking gun kind of solutions for that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But I just think if, if we're going to get the next generation to kind of Um, have a healthier kind of, um, yeah, just uh, generative mode of discourse, they have to see it modeled. And currently they're looking, currently they're looking at their, the older generation and they're seeing just the worst elements of Twitter debate, you know, (laughs) happening Uh. in the church. And it's, it's sad to see. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And go ahead, Aubrey, Aubrey, did you have a
2: question? Well, I was just going to say, and do you feel like, I mean, the next generation certainly is seeing this, and we're failing. Do you feel like our witness is also at stake? Just our witness yeah. of the gospel is that yeah, at absolutely. stake?
3: Absolutely, yeah. If you know, I, I open my Twitter page on any given day, and I see what's being like <laughs> debated, and the tone of the debates among Christians, and it just breaks my heart. And I, I always think about that witness issue, and I think about like what does a non-Christian think of like all these people who supposedly worship the same Christ and supposedly are unified by the same, you know, cross of Christ. Like how is it that they are so divided on so many issues and have so much venom towards one another on all these issues? Like it doesn't like inspire confidence that, that, that the gospel is real and that the power and that the power of the gospel to unify people across divides is, is real but it is real, right? Like, it, there's nothing on earth that has more potential power to kind of break down divisions and unify people across divides. There's nothing as powerful as Cross of Christ to do that. So, if we're not leaning into that and modeling that in our disagreements and our discussions among kind of among the family, um, right. the broad the broad family of um, Christians, then it's a terrible witness. And, uh, and yet there's such an opportunity there because I do think in the broader culture, like it's so divided and everyone is just fragmenting into like ever more insular kind of Mm -hmm. echo chambers. And um, there aren't many opportunities for kind of people of different backgrounds and different kind of divisions to come together in community. And so the church has a great opportunity, I think in this generation to, to show the world what, what it can be right mm-hmm. um, in, in, in kind of the power of the spirit in, with the common ground of scripture and God's kind of um, unshakable foundation of truth. Like it should enable us to form a diverse community, um, but it's it doesn't look like we're leaning into that well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's lamentable.
0: Yeah. And, and you wrote a book that came out recently called the wisdom pyramid. Uh, you and I talked about that, I think a couple months ago. And, mm-hmm. but I think it plays so much into this conversation. So besides yeah. wanting people to know about the book, I would love for you to talk because in it, you talk about the need for Christians to uh, ground our lives on, on the reliable sources, trustworthy sources like the Bible. But so many yeah. of us just spend all of our time Uh, with social media and stuff, can you help people understand just the gravity and the dangers of social media? Like not that they're going to go away and we need to get rid of them, but Mm -hmm. kind of this idea that we have to orient our lives on the right sources. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, The, the the orientation of the pyramid with the Bible at the foundation, like the Bible at the foundation makes everything above it fruitful and it opens up, it opens up possibilities to, to go and explore nature and to explore the arts and beauty and to read widely and to kind of fill your library with all sorts of thinkers and books, you know, Christian or non-Christian. It's only because we have that unshakable kind of infallible, like objective truth at the foundation that's liberating, right? Like it's sometimes there's a stereotype that like, you know, people who believe the Bible, it's like this constricting kind of, narrow-minded, um, prison of thought, but it's the exact opposite. Like, yeah. um, it provides this foundation upon which you can actually like build knowledge. And, and that's, that's kind of a big theme of my article, right? Like this has been the case for like most of the great universities. Like the reason Oxford exists, the reason Harvard exists is because of this idea that only if you have shared consensus on indisputable truth, like God's transcendent revelation, that's what empowers you to like go on all these explorations Mm -hmm. and all these disciplines. It's the, it's the veritas that the the unshakable truth of, of God's revelation that allows that. If you don't have that, um, and, and there's no objective truth, like intellectual life really becomes just this kind of circular meandering like nomadic like aimless thing like there's no way you can ultimately have a purpose like uh, there's there's no way you can um kind of uh adjudicate truth with anyone else it just Mm -hmm. kind of inevitably it devolves into like my truth is this your truth is that and they can't be reconciled and Mm -hmm. the only thing that can reconcile it is power and like who's the loudest voice and who has the biggest platform and that's what we're yeah. seeing in our culture, right? That's why things are getting so messy is yeah, because we don't have a shared, uh, you know, objective truth. So anyway, that's that's why I wrote the Wisdom Pyramid. Mm-hmm. I think it's a liberating vision for a broad kind of beautiful intellectual life. Um, really, the Wisdom Pyramid is kind of like <laughs> a manifesto for like Christian higher education and like a, <laughs> a, Wheaton, a Wheaton College, you know, type thing because – I think that's what Wheaton would say, right? Like we can have an, a, a very vibrant intellectual community because we have this like solid foundation in God's right. word, not in spite of it, but because of it. Like, and so that's the same idea with wisdom right. pyramid.
2: Amen. So good, Brett. Brett, where can our listeners find out more about you, find more of your writing, find pictures maybe of me and you working together 20 years ago at the Wade center. Where can we find and follow all things Brett McCracken?
3: Man, I would love to dig up those old archival photos. The, this is 20, 20 years ago now, probably it's like definitely 20 yeah. years
2: ago. Yeah. Yes, i the same age, yeah. but
3: <laughs> um, they can find information on me and my books at brettmccracken.com. And just follow me on social media if you want. Um, Although I feel weird about recommending that since with uh, with (laughs) the pyramid we just had. (laughs) Yeah, so you don't have to do that. But um, yeah, and then the Gospel Coalition is really the main like place where I'm writing these days. So you can follow my my work there.
0: Awesome. Again, Brett McCracken is a senior editor and director of communications at the Gospel Coalition, author of a book that we would encourage you to go get called The Wisdom Pyramid. Uh, Brett, this has been great, man. We'll have you on again. Thanks for doing this.
2: Yeah, thanks for being with us.
0: Thanks so much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to the common good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. Uh, so I was scrolling through Twitter last night for NFL draft purposes. As we talked about earlier in the show, it's a NFL draft is an awesome time to be on Twitter because you get immediate reaction from fans, from, uh, from commentators, from reporters, all sorts of stuff. But as I was going through there, came across uh, a tweet. Uh, from a, a former pastor, church planter, author of a book called Love Over Fear. I believe he's been on the show before. His name's Dan White Jr. Uh-huh. Uh, he wrote a tweet that I found fascinating, but then also started finding all of the responses to it pretty fascinating. People were kind of diving in on it. So let me, uh, I, I don't know, we don't always do this, but let me just read the tweet and I'd love to just have you react to it. He wrote this. It's a couple different tweets, it's a little bit of a thread. He wrote this, I did a straw poll on my book tour, parentheses, it says 13 cities, with 829 folks in 2019. So this is back when you authors were able to do things called Oh, book
2: tours. I remember those days, Yep.
0: He wrote this, 76% of those who identified as progressives see, quote, loving enemies as complicity with injustice. Hmm. 78% of those who identified as conservative see loving enemies as compromise with immorality. And then Dan White writes, think we got a problem? He says, "What what was illuminating in our workshops is that most Christians do not see enemy love as the route to addressing immorality or injustice in the life of another. Somehow, they missed how Jesus did it mm. for the few folks who believed loving enemies was central to being a Christian. Many reduced it down to having sentimental, nice thoughts. So there's so much in that tweet and in the responses to it. But when you read that, you said you saw that on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, just what was your reaction to that?
2: I mean, one, it did make me wonder how are people defining loving enemies? Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and he did address this, that uh loving enemies a lot of people folks is reduced down to having sentimental nice thoughts. So obviously that feels like that's part of the problem is how we define love and you know Jesus showed us love by laying down his life for us. Um so I do think it's a problem that progressives would think laying down their life for someone else is complicity with injustice and I do think it's a problem that conservatives would see laying down their life for their enemy as compromised with immorality when this is the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm also aware First Corinthians one says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So of course, like
1: mm.
2: it's in one sense it makes sense, but it sounds like he interviewed Christians. If yeah. he's oh, on he a,
0: absolutely did
2: he's on a book tour in churches, that's the part that's disconcerting to me. Is like these are Christians saying loving our enemies is essentially not godly.
0: That's right. That's right. And I think um, it raises... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go
2: ahead. You go ahead.
0: I think it raises an enormous question, and that is... Because uh, I think you're 100% right. We have to define what loving looks like and who our enemies are. And We don't like to call people enemies, but we've talked a lot about how in our day and age right now, enemies, we kind of link to people on the other side of the political spectrum or yeah. whatever else, other religions, whatever else it might be. But I do think it raises a much bigger question about whether we as Christians, like you said, this straw poll was all Christians. He was right. doing this uh, to Christian audiences. He asked that question in a straw poll. Uh, It does raise the question if we as Christians actually believe that the way of Jesus works Mm. and Mm. if the way of Jesus is effective and if we even long to live like Jesus did or if he talked about it having sentimental nice thoughts. If we go, yeah, that Jesus stuff is kind of nice. But then when push comes to shove, if even us who claim to be Christ followers go, yeah, that's not really a good way to live our lives, you know, laying down my life for for others, loving my enemies, uh, putting others before myself not chasing after money, all of these things, if we go, those are good words, Jesus, but just give me the heaven stuff and, and like let me live as I want to live.
2: I do think this is a problem in general with the way we think about Christian faith, because I do think, I mean, okay, I want to be careful saying this, but part of, of course, the beauty of our faith is atonement theory, right? That Jesus died for our sins in our place so that we mm-hmm. can be forgiven and go to heaven. That is a wonderful part of our faith. So I don't ever want to minimize that. However, that's not the entire gospel. The gospel is also that we are committed to the way of Jesus. Like we are aligning ourselves with who Jesus was and what Jesus commanded his followers to do, which was to take up our cross and die, to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek. And I feel like we forget that part of what, I mean, a major part of what it means to be a Christian is this call to love the other, and we sort of think that part doesn't matter, but I feel like we are maybe in danger of mm. missing out on what it actually means to be a Christian. And I'm looking at my own the plank in my own eye in this, right? Um, we miss out on what it actually means to be a Christian if we are not willing to die to ourselves to love even people who hate us.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think. Another thing that we get wrong is to assume that loving our enemies automatically means that I have to agree with everything Mm, they're saying.
2: That's good. Or or be okay with like sin.
0: And be okay with everything they're doing or whatever else it might be. And so we go, well, I can't love and still call out injustice or still call out immorality or still reject something someone's saying. This isn't mean I have to just agree and, and just sign off or be quiet or whatever else, but But there is, you know, we need to have a conversation about posture, but also just I can love people and have disagreements with them. But right now, our culture tells you if you disagree with somebody, you need to hate them and fight them. Uh, right. and, and I would remind people that Jesus, the closest he came to fighting people were with the religious people. <laughs>
2: and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not the with the enemies. Right. right. So then the, I think it begs the question, Brian, and we only have a little bit of time left, but what does mm-hmm. it mean to love enemies in today's world? Like when you're pastoring your people or when you're thinking about your own family, how do you teach others and in your own life to love your enemies?
0: Yeah. So there's one, and it's a great church answer, but it's a church answer because Jesus gave it right. Like it's hard to hate people that I'm praying for.
1: Oh, so that's
0: good. Jesus talks about praying for our enemies. And so I, that, again, is, th- is that something we actually believe or is that just a great church answer, right? Mm. And so it's praying for them. And then uh, being intentional about doing loving things for people that may not be my best friends in the world. They may yeah. not be people in my quote unquote tribe. And making that first step, Jesus constantly was taking first steps towards people. Hmm. And uh, and and as I can take on that posture, I think then I start loving people that, again, I disagree with. I think, you know, fairly or unfairly, and I think at times it's fair, at times it's unfair, the church has a reputation for not just... You know, standing up against things that they don't believe in, but also doing it in an unloving way,
1: right, right? And
0: and being combative and stuff. And I just don't think that's the way of Jesus. I think Dan White is getting at something when he asks the question: Do you think we have a problem? I think the applied answer to that is yes. Yes, <laughs> yes we have a problem. So, really important conversation really mm-hmm. boils down to: Do we believe? that the way of Jesus is actually the way we should and can live our lives. And that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Well, coming up next, do you follow an Americanized Jesus or the crucified Christ? This is a question that we all wrestle with, and it was raised in a Christianity Today article recently. Aubrey and I are going to have that discussion next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, do we follow an Americanized Jesus or the crucified Christ? And then we're going to talk about forming cross-cultural relationships with Dr. Michelle Reyes. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. Hope that you're having a great day. Looking forward to a great weekend. Uh, a difficult question. That's what we want to wrestle with here at the beginning of this hour here. Do we follow an Americanized Jesus or the crucified Christ? We got thinking about this uh, due to an article by Pete, Peter Peterskazero who is just, you know, Peter He's Scazzaro great. wrote a yeah. book entitled uh, The Emotionally Healthy uh, Pastor, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, Leader uh, the, Emotionally the Emotionally Healthy, Healthy Church.
2: Christian. yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, obviously, all about emotional health. But Peter Scazzaro, uh asked, Do you follow the right Jesus for cultural values entice us toward an Americanized Messiah instead of a crucified Christ? And hmm. Aubrey, I know, I know it's a conversation we need to have when you and I both grab the same article going like, Hey, we should kind of, we need to talk this about this. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. How would you just to get it kind of uh, pushed off here? What What's the difference in Americanized <sighs> Jesus versus a crucified Christ? Like, how do we even? begin this to conceive of this conversation in our minds.
2: Yeah, I you know, I, I do think it's really difficult, especially as Americans, to sort of untangle our Americanness from our understanding of Jesus. And so in some ways, I feel like I'm not even removed enough to know the answer to this, but I I do think we forget that we follow a Middle Eastern savior from a Middle Eastern context often. And so things that we might, you know, uplift, right, like strength and worldly Mm -hmm. greatness and money and success and popularity and sort of this like pulling up the bootstraps cowboy kind of America. (laughs) We sort of assume that's what Jesus was like. And certainly Jesus was victorious. Certainly Jesus was powerful. Certainly Jesus was these things. But what we know is that he was a humble, poor carpenter. Right. You know, and that's not who we raise up in America. That's not who we're like. That's our hero, but that's who Jesus was. And I, you know, I do think these conversations are important to help us find like who really is this Jesus that we say yeah. is our Lord and Savior.
0: Yeah. At the end of last hour, you and I were discussing a tweet from Dan White Jr. in which he was basically challenging the idea that we don't believe in Jesus's foundational teaching of loving your enemies. Like we yeah. don't actually. We don't actually live that out and believe that as a way of living our lives. And I think that gets at the heart of there are values and things uh, that we as Americans, like you said, hold up as kind of dear. But not all of them match. Some of them do, but not all of them match up with the ways that Jesus told us to live our lives. And that's where if we're not careful, we can kind of mix the two and go – uh, you know, it, it, oh, Jesus, you know, of course, Jesus wants me to, um, you know, have, uh, to, to just watch out for myself or to whatever else. They start to run contrary to the things that we see in Jesus. And, and I think that's what Peter Skazaro is getting at here. Like, we have to be really intentional to go, uh, okay maybe kind of a Western ideal is to defeat your enemies to be victorious. But as Mm. we talked about earlier, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, You know, the West says defeat your enemies and, and subjugate those who persecute you. You How do I, how do I meld those and how am I actually going to live my life? This has to do, and we could go through his list here in a second, but it has to do how we treat money, comfort. Jesus had some really difficult things to say about comfort, our culture really, really values comfort <laughs> and free I mean, time. And whatever. I'm even else thinking it might that I,
2: I've sat in sermons where pastors have have talked about this, right? And then they've been like, but Jesus didn't actually mean it this way. And I'm like, uh, 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 I maybe we <laughs> want Jesus not to have meant it that way, but like, Jesus didn't mess around. Well, you're right about wealth and comfort. Like, he had some hard words.
0: Absolutely. And so uh, I want to run quickly and you can pick which one jumps out to you because I think it's really helpful what Scazzaro uh, does here. He says there are four vices of worldly discipleship that are deeply ingrained in the church that just as Jesus taught the 12, we too must reject these four things categorically, he says, not only because they are, is that, what's that word? Illusory, 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 temporary. But because they damage us and people we lead. So I won't read how he describes them. Let me just read the four headings of these. He says one is the temptation of popularity. Ooh, hmm. That's a good one. Yep. Number two is the temptation of worldly greatness. Hmm. Number three is the temptation of success. And yep. number four is the temptation to avoid suffering and failure. And he says these are these are very western american temptations that run contrary to the ways of Jesus. Pick one of those four and kind of uh, kind of pontificate if you will on it.
2: Yeah, I, the one that stands out to me is the temptation to avoid suffering and failure <laughs> because I I mean, you know, I have a whole book on suffering. So this is an important topic to me, but I do hear a lot in the church that um if, if you're, I mean, I think it's a subtle message, right? But if you're some, if you're suffering, something is wrong. Jesus is not mm-hmm. blessing you. God is not with you. Uh, and then this failure, I mean, this is the really big one. I, I think we assume that God is going to give us success. Like, that's just yes. very American. And of course, we want success. But somehow when we begin to equate that with the way of God or success equals God's blessing, that becomes a whole mess of things. Because if we think again about Christians globally, success looks really different for someone who is dying for their faith, who is being persecuted for their faith. Like how do you define success that way? And then I think that also brings up a point that this is why it's so helpful to be in relationships cross-culturally, which we're actually going to talk about with Michelle Reyes today. Um, but we, uh, we need each other. We need other perspectives to help us see the things we can't see as Americans. And then other countries, other ethnicities, other worldviews need Americans' perspective, too, so that we can have a understanding, bigger understanding of who God
0: is. That's well put. I think that temptation towards popularity, I think I admitted to you a couple of days ago that I'm a people pleaser and, and we grow up from early on, like we want approval, right? And we want, of course. And, and a lot of times that's driven by, uh, you know, how we perform, how we act. We want others. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Yeah. But, but when popularity and acceptance becomes kind of your, uh, your idol, if you will. We don't see that in the life of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. We don't see Jesus looking for, he could have, right? He could have been doing miracles on the street corner and had this huge crowd and people would have just been there for him. But we see that Jesus had a much, a much bigger purpose, uh, and that he didn't seem overly concerned with what are people thinking about me.
2: Definitely not.
0: And so – and Paul doesn't seem overly Uh -uh, concerned with – Definitely Sometimes you want to like yell at your Bible, like Paul, just a little bit of tact, (laughs) we're going to help you out here. And and that becomes a real struggle because, uh, you know, we live in a place, in a culture in which just a decade or two ago, one of the biggest taglines in marketing was image is everything. Like Mm. it is – what are you putting out there? What are other people thinking of you? And that becomes – you know, really difficult. I think you and I both chose this article because uh, it's really, uh, it cuts close to home for yeah, me, yes, I'm sure yeah. for you, but also for all of us. There is a difference between American values and the values of Jesus. Yeah. And sometimes they overlap. We're not saying they're antithetical that's to right. each other. That's right. Sometimes they overlap and we can cheer that, but sometimes they don't. And we've got to really ask those hard questions. Yeah, we well, coming right. up next. Uh, we're going to be joined by Dr. Michelle Reyes. She's the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Uh, and and we're going to have this conversation with her. What's the value of cross-cultural relationships? And how do you grow in, in making cross-cultural relationships? We're going to have that conversation with Dr. Michelle Reyes next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, by Dr. Michelle Ami Reyes. Uh, Michelle is the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative uh, and just had a book released entitled Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Yeah, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a delight.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into your book, which looks wonderful, before we dive in there, could you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better?
4: Yeah, definitely. So I'm a second-generation Indian American born in South Carolina. I grew up in Minnesota, and now I'm here in Austin, Texas. Uh, My husband and I are church planters in East Austin, which is a historically segregated uh, and, and disadvantaged black and brown community. And so, uh, beyond some of the other hats that I wear, I, I, you know, vocational ministry is, is part of our day to day. And then I have a five and a two year old. And so, in the midst wow. of COVID and quarantines, we're navigating homeschooling and, and all the rest. So, uh, you know, keeping busy these days. But as you, as you mentioned, I had a book come out this past week, Becoming All Things. And so, this has just been a special week. Um, it's so exciting to be at this point. That's great.
2: Michelle, that's so wonderful. So what uh, led you to write this book?
4: Yeah, you know, everywhere I went from from church to just online conversations, conferences, people were asking me, how do I make friends with people of other cultures? What is the first step? And even, you know, I don't want to offend someone. What should I do and not do? And after years of having these conversations, I felt called to write Becoming All Things Especially in recent years, as so many of us have been exposed to racial divisions and tragedies in our country, and we're realizing the church hasn't spoke up on these issues, and we haven't been taught how to think biblically about culture and race and justice. So I wrote this book for the church. It's a mix of personal narrative, biblical frameworks, and just practical how-tos to see culture uh, and connect with people around us.
0: Yeah, that's great and michelle i'm wondering more about your own personal story how about growing up or as you were getting into academia um what, what was it like for you these kind of cross-cultural relationships what were some of the barriers and just what's part of your own story
4: yeah my own story like i mentioned i grew up in minnesota i was i grew up in a, a scandinavian community you know Almost all of my classmates, the people at our church, our neighborhood, are you know blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, you know folks that love Swedish meatballs and cross-country skiing. Uh, you know, and and there's no shade on Swedish meatballs; they're delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, we, you know, because of the color of my skin, I'm a brown-skinned woman. My mom, my sister, we were the only. We were the only minorities that I knew. There was there wow. was no other Asians in my school. There was no other African-Americans or Latinos uh, or Native Americans. And so um, I, I grew up just feeling like I didn't fit in, like there was something wrong with me because no one looked like me. No mm-hmm. one lived their life the way I did. And I I, I didn't know... Uh, what that meant? Am I am I just uncool, right? Or or am I not mm. going to be able to do what everyone else around me seems to be able to do so well? And you know, throughout the journey of my life, I've learned as I've developed into my own cultural identity that God has made me uniquely me, uh, and has a unique calling in my life. And even the fact that I've I've lived at this intersection of majority and minority worlds, uh, God is equipped folks like me, bicultural, multicultural people, to be able to speak to both sides and to be bridge builders uh, mm. in these conversations. And so uh, it's been quite a journey to go from shame to celebration, uh, but, wow. but that's where I am now.
2: Oh, I love that, Michelle. So you just use this term bridge builders, and it, it got me thinking in in our world, that feels very divided right now, at least, you know, uh, in like on social media, it feels very divided. Where do we begin having these bridge bridge building conversations about race?
4: Yeah, great question. Well, I'm going to answer that specifically for Believers, uh, because I believe that we need to begin by understanding what the Bible has to say about race, but also ethnicity and culture. Uh, we need to recover a biblical theology of ethnicity and culture, and to understand, uh, you know, from the cultural mandate in Genesis one twenty-eight, in which we see God's plan to fill the earth by promoting the spread of different people groups with different languages and ethnicities, to Revelation seven nine, where we have this picture of believers as multi-ethnic and multicultural worshiping God. Together, we we need to see in Scripture that cultural flourishing is paramount to what it means to be human and our yeah. ability to be together in Christ, uh, not only for the present age but throughout eternity. And so, we need to be developing our cultural identities, celebrating them, so that we can see and celebrate cultural identities in the people around us. Um, But in terms of race, it's important to understand that race was coined a couple years, or I'm sorry, a couple centuries ago by (laughs) Europeans to distinguish hierarchies between people of different ethnicities. And this hierarchy was based off of phenotypes, how a person looks. And so the Bible has a lot to say about why racial division and racial hierarchies are wrong. And as followers of Jesus, we have to deconstruct and remove these, not only from our own hearts, but society as a whole. So Mm -hmm. first step, Start with studying and understanding race, ethnicity, and culture in Scripture and what God requires of us.
0: Yeah, and Michelle, you often hear people say, especially in the church, God doesn't see race. God doesn't see, you know, we're all the same. But uh, help people understand, know why it's important to not only understand, but also celebrate the diversity within the church. That that the Bible doesn't remove our diversity, uh, but that God is actually the creator of diversity. Why is that such an important concept?
4: No, that's, that's great. Yeah. And I think sometimes Bible verses are taken out of context to, to try to justify that position, you know, Galatians. Three twenty-eight. you know, mm-hmm. there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, but, you know, we we interpret that Bible verse a little bit one-sided. We try to use that to say, see, our cultural identities don't matter. You know, we're just all one in Christ. But nobody goes the next step and says, see, we're neither male nor female either. <laughs> we're all, you know, <laughs> asexual or something like that. Nobody would remove biological difference mm-hmm. uh, and, and say that that no longer matters in Christ. And so it's a little lopsided. Uh, And, you know, verses like that are are actually talking about uh, there is no longer racial division. There should be no longer any hierarchies or things in which we, uh, you know, create hurdles and obstacles to be be, uh, joined in unity, in diversity, if you will. And so, um, you know, I think the more that we can properly understand these sorts of bible verses the better we will have a, a, a proper context mm-hmm. we're seeing how our cultural identities are interwoven into into who we are as spiritual beings mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So good. So good, Michelle. So so you said, as we started, you're a co-church co-ch- planter. I'm a co-church planter. Brian's a co-church planter. Yeah, and I so love we that. love getting to talk with church planters. Um, do you feel like your church is doing a good job at embodying diversity and racial unity in some of these cross-cultural relationships? And then generally, how can the
4: church get better at this? Yeah. I mean... Man, I'm, I'm a bit biased, right? Because <laughs> I love my church. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of good happening uh, at Hope Community Church right now. You know, we... Uh, our day-to-day ministry, vocational ministry it means being involved in a lot of justice initiatives. Uh, you know, we go, uh, we go door to door, to, to folks in government housing around where we meet to just to pray for people, to ask how they're doing. Uh, and as we hear people's needs, you know, whether they need rent money or groceries, like we're trying to holistically care for people as it, as it calls us to in the gospel. Um, you know, we're, we're, uh, setting up uh, hand-washing stations for the ho- for those experiencing homelessness and uh, mm-hmm. working with our, our mayor and Texas uh, judges to reform local uh, laws uh, so that people aren't put in prison for minor misdemeanors like rolling through a stop sign uh, because then people can't, pay to, you know, pay bail. And then they have these criminal records that uh, impede them from getting jobs, which then leads to, um, you know, certain lifestyles. And so that's a lot of what we do on the ground. Um, and, and I'll, I'll say this, our proximity to our community around us, our living life with the people around us is what leads to opening our eyes to new perspectives, it leads to empathy uh, and it leads to then real action based off of real needs. And so uh, for any church, you know, think through who are the communities around you? How can you build real relationships with them and not come in as like a white savior type complex? Like I'm just going to come and fix all your needs. Yeah. But how do you build real friendships uh, and and hear what people actually need and then respond accordingly? I think we as a church, we can grow in that.
0: Mm -hmm. Dr. Michelle Ami Reyes is the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative, also the author of a book that just came out this past Tuesday called Becoming All Things. One of the conversations that often happens when talking about justice and race and other kind of what, you know, important conversations within the church, you'll hear some people say, uh, just focus on the gospel, all right? Just mm-hmm. focus on the gospel and let the rest take care of itself. I'm sure you've been told that and asked that many times. How do you answer that when people say, uh, let's just preach and focus on the gospel?
4: <laughs> well, uh, my, my tongue in cheek answer is <laughs> I reply, I am, I am focusing on the gospel. <laughs> now, now, let me tell you what the gospel truly is. Uh-huh. Uh, because, you know, we, uh, in, in North American uh, evangelical Christianity, we we too often have this anemic understanding of the gospel. And we, we see it in only uh, s- spiritual and individualistic terms. Uh, you know, we've we've turned our focus to just getting people right with Jesus. If, if only they would believe in Jesus, then things like racism would disappear overnight. But the, the sad reality is that it's been Christians— among other people, but Christians included throughout human history who have been perpetuating racism, (laughs) you know, from from the Crusades through, uh, you know, U.S. American history. Uh, And and so, uh, you know, we cannot be so naive to think, oh, as long as we believe in Jesus, we will not be racists. And Mm. so, uh, you you know, when we look to the Gospels, when we look at uh, Mark chapter one, Jesus is in breaking kingdom. And he says, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Yes, he goes and he tells people to believe, uh, and, and there is a spiritual component, but he's also then feeding people and healing the sick and the lame and the blind and and reingratiating them back into society. The gospel that Jesus brings is holistic. Uh, and if we truly want to live out the gospel, then we need to understand in which um, Jesus c- comes to seek to restore all things, uh, to live in a way that is just. Uh, and in many ways, gospel and justice are synonymous terms. And so, uh, mm-hmm. so that's why I, kind of, I think, tongue in cheek, I say, you know, I am living out the gospel. Uh-huh. We need kind of this holistic, <laughs> restorative approach to that's people good. to care for their hearts and also for their physical, emotional, mental well-being.
2: So good, Michelle. Okay, this is kind of a big question. But um, from your perspective, what are one or two things that need to just be deconstructed or really sort of demolished, so that we can build a better, safer, more equitable country for minorities in America?
4: Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak as an Indian American. Uh, One of the things that we need to do is deconstruct the black-white binary. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, the largest minority group in this country are Latinos, uh, but for too long the stories of Asians and Latinos, Latinos in this country have been overlooked when we just limit ourselves to race relations in black-white terms, and so hmm. I believe it's time for a reckoning with Asian American history, uh, and for all people to see the lived experiences of Asian Americans, including the racism we endure, as essential to an understanding of the American story, which is of course inseparable from the story of Christianity in our country. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I just I, I just got the news today about Sean Wynn, uh, an Asian American man in Indiana who was um, accosted by two white men in his own van, uh, mm. you know, and murdered. Uh, and, and the police just found his body, you know, dismembered in the back of his mm. own van. Um, and, you know, this sort of anti-Asian racism exists throughout U.S. American history, but it has a new iteration during the time of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and, and so all this to say, the problems of race for Asians in America look different than they do for the Black community, for the Latino community, and more. And we can challenge ourselves by educating ourselves to the history of anti-Asian racism, both within the church and society at large. So read books like Erica Lee's The Making of Asian America, read books like Frank Wu's Yellow, and sit under the teachings of minorities, especially Christians and Christian leaders of color, uh, because that's how we're going to learn uh, what is needed. Uh, You know, let Christians of color, leaders of color lead us to understand what we need to deconstruct.
0: Mm, That's good. Uh, The tagline of your book is how small changes lead to lasting connections across cultures. Are there some specific change? Because people right now could be thinking, man, this is a really big topic. I don't know how to get my arms around it. What are some of these small changes that you suggest? What are some small changes, not just in churches, but individuals can make that will lead to lasting connections across cultures?
4: That's good. Yeah. You know, I start off my book actually by encouraging people to develop their own cultural identities, to go on a journey of seeing color, of understanding who God has made them to be. You know, each of us have a, a beautiful cultural identity that reflects God's image in the world. What is that? What are, what is your story? What are your ethnic roots? Um, how can you uh, lean into that, reclaim it, celebrate it, uh, both individually and as as a family. Because uh, I mentioned that at the beginning of, of our time together, we will not be able to see and appreciate the cultural identities of others if we can't even see our own uh, cultural identity. And hmm. we will not be able to celebrate the cultures of others if we don't know how to celebrate our own culture. So that's step one, is 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 leaning into who God has made us to be.
2: That's so good, Michelle. Um, okay, so I want to switch a little bit and hear more about your work at AACC, the Asian American Christian Collaborative. We had Raymond Chang on a couple weeks ago and loved hearing awesome. from him, but I'd, l- I'd love to hear about what you're doing there.
4: Awesome. Oh, I'm so glad that you had Ray on. Yeah, I mean, uh, so some of this might be... Uh, Redundant, but you know the AACC seeks to mobilize the Asian American Christian voice, and we do this by uh, looking at issues of faith, race, and and justice and culture through a biblical lens. Uh, and uh, you know we we uh, we're a year in the making. Uh, we est- we were established last March twenty twenty as as uh, anti Asian racism was growing, mm-hmm. um, and in the wake of the Atlanta massacre on March sixteenth, um, we. You know, by God's grace, we're able to connect with Asian American Christians and pastors across the country to organize 14 prayer rallies uh, in 14 different cities um, as as a means in which to um, tell the Asian American community at large, "We see you, we're here for you," um, and we just had this communal time of of lament and confession, even and also just um, you know advocacy of of, of next steps uh, because we know that. Uh, more, there's more to come. Uh, you know, this is just the beginning. And, and as I mentioned, um, just hearing about the, another murder of an Asian American man, yeah. this is our reality. Uh, and so AACC is, is our heart is to inspire, equip, and encourage, uh, Asian American Christians to, to raise our voices, um, you know, to say we belong, that we are American yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that our, our theology matters, uh, that our, our, our Christian leadership matters, uh, both, b- both within the church and within society at large.
0: Yeah. And Michelle, before we let you go, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Before we let mm-hmm. you go, let us know everywhere. Let our people know everywhere where they can find you. <laughs> Social media, where can they get your book? Let, we want to take a minute to just let people know where they can find you and your writings.
4: Sure. Uh, you know, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, my social handle is Michelle Ami Reyes on Twitter, Dr. Michelle Reyes. I have a website, michelleamireyes.com. I still have my pre-order bundle up. And so if people purchase, a copy of my book through Amazon, they can go and get my pre-order bundle, which includes a study guide that, mm. uh, you know, accompanies each chapter of the book Two, the first two or three um, audio chapters for free, as well as a cell phone wallpaper on the do's and don'ts of conversation starters to connect across cultures. And so that's available for anybody that's that's interested. That's
0: great. Well, Dr. Michelle Ami Reyes is the vice president of Asian American Christian Collaborative, also the author of a book that just came out this week called Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures. Michelle, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you, Michelle. Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Friday. It's good to get into the weekend. Hope that your week was a good one. Uh, Hopefully, you have some time with family. Enjoy the weather this week. Also, a chance to connect with your church community. Hopefully, you will be able to do that on Sunday. Whether you're doing it in person or virtual, however you are, uh, we hope that you make that a priority so aubrey we've been trying to end the show with just some encouragement and some challenge and i i, I was uh thinking about the concept of the church and mental health mm. and all especially coming out of a pandemic
1: yeah
0: uh and reading an article written by k warren Kay warren uh has done unbelievable um work she and rick warren her husband out at saddleback have done unbelievable work around this idea of the church and mental illness. And yeah. it really comes out of some very personal pain. Their son uh, committed suicide a couple of years ago uh, and really struggled with mental illness for the majority of his life. And they have been really open about it, mm. really open about it. Rick Warren speaks often about mental health. And I thought it was important to talk about this because there's coming, especially out of the pandemic, there's going to be a lot of mental health issues, not just culturally, but also within the church. Definitely. And and I'm not sure, I'd love your opinion on this. I'm not sure. I think the church in general is doing a better job talking about mental health and normalizing mental health issues. Uh, but I'm still not sure we're where we need to be.
2: Yeah, I I I feel like this is something that pastors and church leaders want to do a better job at and that's maybe even uh, an improvement from years ago, but maybe aren't equipped to perhaps Mm. don't know exactly how to do a better job caring for the mental health community. Um, And yeah, I, I feel like pastors just need more equipping. And so I appreciate that the Warrens, especially Kay continues to put this message out there and gives churches some really, you know, solid practical handholds for, how to minister to um, those who are dealing with mental illness.
0: Yeah. She goes on to say in this article, she says there's a desperate need for the church to engage with individuals with mental health challenges and their families. The church is positioned to take strong leadership and to provide the help that others can't. Her point is, like, it's not just something the church has to try to improve at. She's like, the church needs to be at the front end of this. Yeah, she's right. uh, at the at the leading edge of this, providing the assistance, providing the comfort, providing whatever else needs to be provided. And uh, I thought it important that we listen. Kay Warren uh, gave a great talk, gave some great instruction to the church as she shares six things churches can do to help those living with mental illness. Let's give this a listen.
1: I want to just show you really briefly six things that I think every single church can do, whether you're a house church of five or 10 or you're a church of 50 or 100, um, and it's built on the acrostic church. We do everything in acrostics at Saddleback, so we've made one using the word church. And the first thing that every church can do is they can care for and support people living with mental illness. Um, it doesn't cost a penny. To say that we're going to be a place where people can bring their whole selves, where people can come who are living with mental illness and feel accepted and feel wanted, that doesn't cost anything. The first H stands for help with practical needs. Every church can help with practical needs. And then the U in the acrostic stands for utilize volunteers. Every church, again, whether you've got 10 or 15 or 50, has volunteers who are looking for ways to give significantly with their lives. The R is to remove the stigma. This is probably the most powerful thing that any of us can do for people living with mental illness, and that's just simply remove the stigma. The second C is to collaborate with the community. A church doesn't know everything. I mean, most of us don't know much about mental illness, but there are people in the community who actually do. And there are people in organizations that would come free and speak to your church or to a Bible study and explain some of the basics about mental illness. That last H is to offer hope. It's not really the government's responsibility to offer hope. It's not actually the medical community's job to offer hope, but it is the job of the church of Jesus Christ To offer hope to people, and your church can offer hope.
0: All right, Aubrey. First, I'm really impressed that her six things spell out church with their first letter. I
2: mean, she doesn't mess around. That is a that's like a a preacher's dream
0: right there. That is a pro right there. (laughs) Have you ever written a sermon and tried to make it into an acronym like that? I've never tried to do an
2: acronym. Never. I have tried to do the like you know all the points start with the same letter, but I you know this is Uh,
0: next level. Absolutely, but of those six, do any of them stand out to you? That yeah, the church can really. Uh, obviously, we want to do all of these, but mm-hmm. but which one of of any of these six kind of jumped out to you?
2: Uh, I think uh, the R remove the stigma. That one feels really important, and I'm not sure that one why that one stuck out to me, but I do feel like there is a stigma around mental illness, and again, I I think that goes with anything that feels sort of unknown you kind of put a stigma on it because you like don't know how to define it. You don't know. Yeah. Um, And then I I think what I don't like about the stigma is that it causes those in the mental illness community to feel ashamed. And then there isn't a space to be able to come out and say, wait, I struggle with anxiety. I struggle with depression. I struggle with bipolar disorder or whatever it might be. And um, so I, I do feel like this removing the stigma, normalizing the fact that a massive population in our country and in the world, especially now coming out of the pandemic, even more people are struggling with mental illness related trauma. Um, let's just, yeah, let's just normalize it and and make sure everyone feels safe and comfortable to talk about what they're dealing with.
0: Absolutely. And I, I do appreciate number five, because you said so. it's collaborate with the community. You said something I think really important earlier that we as pastors and church leaders don't feel equipped or know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if somebody's got a physical illness, you send them to the doctor, right? You know, you know, we know what to do in those situations. But, but what we don't know what to do oftentimes is we haven't been trained on what to do if somebody in your congregation is struggling with mental illness. So I really appreciate her call, like, collaborate with the professionals That's in your it. community. That's it. Like, And not even your church community, like get to know a counselor or two or more in your community that then you could point your people to. Like, listen, I trust that man. I trust that woman. Yeah. Uh, and go there and, and, uh, as opposed to like, I don't know what to do. Right. I don't know what to do with bipolar. Cause if somebody from my church came to me, And we're clearly exhibiting, you know, symptoms of bipolar disease or whatever else. I wouldn't have the first idea of what to do. Right. But there are there are trained doctors and professionals that we can uh, help people become connected with and and get away from believing, well, you know, I should know what to do. And then I give them a couple Bible verses and send them on their way.
2: Right. (laughs) Right. that ends Not up, I think, really adding to the adding to the trauma, right? That ends up being right. a little bit dangerous, and I, I do think that's a whole different conversation about why pastors feel like they have to be all things, right? Yes, but I, I do I agree with you that collaborating with the community piece, finding therapists in your church body or in your community in your city that you can trust that you can uh, send your folks to easily, and it, even the church in a lot of ca- cases can help pay for some therapy right. and just um you know. Empower other people rather than feeling like you have to solve everything.
0: All right, I'm going to end by letting you be a little pastoral here. That number six is offer hope. Mm-hmm. No doubt, we have people listening right now who are just struggling. They're yeah. they are uh, they're struggling with depression, anxiety, whatever else it might be. Uh, could you offer? Let's end the show with uh, you offering some sort of hope to that person who may be in their car or in their in their room right now, just struggling.
2: Yeah. You know, Psalm 34 says that those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. And so if you are, you know, battling with any type of mental illness and you have felt shame for it, or you live with shame because of it, I want you to know that that is not how God sees you. God sees you as his radiant child. I want you to know that there is hope when you, you know, look to a professional, when you look to your community. And, um, I also want you to know that nothing is wrong with you, even Hmm. though it may feel like something is wrong with you. It may feel like something is broken with you. You are whole in Jesus. You are loved completely in Jesus. And there are gifts in this that you actually get to bring to the church. God wants to invite you to bring your whole self, including your mental illness, including your battles to the church community because we need you. We need the wisdom that you have experienced because of what you have walked through. And so I, you know, with as much authority as I have over the radio, I bless you Mm. and um, pray that God would meet you right where you are.
0: That's a good word, friend. That's a good way to end for those, especially out there who are struggling. Uh, And church, we can do a good job of offering hope and helping people as well. As Kay Warren said, being on the front end of this. Well, we're glad that you joined us for this week. If you've missed any of our shows, Go get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. We hope that you have a great weekend. Join us on Monday from 4 until 6. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.